Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. After my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we're going to reveal the hidden secrets of the public mind, looking at the biggest polling stories driving news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So, Kristen, we have a few exciting announcements um, this time. First of all, we're back in the sound booth. It's amazing. It's so wonderful to not be in an airport Sheraton. Or in my closet. Under a comforter. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping the Wi-Fi is good. Hoping Hoping the baby doesn't cry. (laughs) So, in fact, this is the first time we have seen each other while we are recording in a couple months, and so that's new too, or at least new again. And we almost didn't recognize our own voices because we're actually (laughs) in a proper sound booth. We sound so amazing. (laughs) And I'm sure you'll agree. Or maybe you don't know the difference because you're a new listener because we have so many new listeners. Hello. Hello and welcome to our show. We're so glad you're here. Yes. Last week was our best rated show ever by a ton. So thanks again to Ann Seltzer from uh, the Des Moines Register uh, Bloomberg Politics Poll for a great interview. And if you haven't already, uh, write a review on iTunes or on Stitcher. It makes a huge difference so we can find even more new listeners or tweet out that you like the show. That's cool, too. And we'll retweet you. And we even heard from a professor Brent, who says he plays clips of our show in his stats class. So hi, Dr. Brent stats class. And uh, stats are cool. And if you have, uh, if you're in a class or you're a professor and um, you have something you want us to talk about for your class, we'd be happy to do that. That is a cool, that is a cool thing. And good for you students taking statistics, by the way. This is the class that you will come to rely on time and time and time again after graduation, regardless of what field you're in. So absolutely. Kudos to you. Do your homework. Study hard. (laughs) Stay in school. (laughs) I don't know. Be good, kids. Be responsible. Make I, good choices. Yes, don't text and drive. We have lots of advice, but I guess it's a different show. So it's, um, I don't know if that's a, like a liberal arts folks who are taking stats or if it's stats for statisticians, but it's definitely, it's definitely good. And even if you don't use it in your job, I can tell you by looking at like nanny share taxes and what percent of the nanny share do you pay if you have two kids, one of them part of the day versus another family that's got one kid? You need math for all of that. So all of that <laughs> stuff requires math. Last announcement uh, this week, a pioneer in the field of polling, Andrew Cohot from Pew. He passed away. Our condolences to the Pew family and Andrew's family and colleagues. He was a real pioneer known for all kinds of things. But uh, one thing that folks may recall, he coined the phrase Clinton fatigue in the 90s. Um, so top lines, what are the the top lines. The top lines this week, burn, baby, burn, pollster, inferno. 
God, that was terrible. <laughs> Bernie Sanders tops Hillary Clinton in the latest Quinnipiac, Iowa poll. Uh Donald Trump and Ben Carson are soaring above the rest of the Republican field heading into next week's debate in California. John Kasich, though he trails significantly nationwide, is really staking his claim in New Hampshire. To celebrate Labor Day, we're going to dive into Americans' views on labor unions as well as their own experiences in the workplace with pay, benefits, discrimination, and promotions. We will then dive into Pew's amazing latest report on the millennial generation and how the generations view themselves. Spoiler alert, millennials don't even want to be thought of as millennials. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about um, Kim Davis, uh, the story out of Kentucky about the uh, county clerk who's refusing to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples um, and has gone to jail. As a result, we'll look at what the polls say about that story. Last but not least, we have an interview coming up with Howard Feinberg of the Marketing Research Association. He's the head lobbyist for the polling industry, and he'll talk to us about the latest FCC regulations on pollsters. So in 2016, you know, initially, as long ago as yesterday, I think around 11 o'clock, I thought maybe we should just give 2016 a break because there's just Trump all the time. And next week is the debate. And then we'll have post-debate polling for a couple of weeks. And maybe people just want a little breather, you know, to just have a Trump-free space safe zone for a little and bit. And then CNN and Quinnipiac said, nope, <laughs> you are going to talk about our polls. Well, first Kristen said, well, maybe we need to <laughs> talk about it a little bit. And then the polls hit us, smacked us in the face between last night and today. So, and this is on top of what has been now a pattern for a while. So, you know, so we have Quinnipiac, we have CNN that came out this morning. There was this NBC Marist poll that came out over the weekend. Uh, what's going on? Let's start, I guess let's start on the Republican side. What is going on on the Republican side? On the Republican side, as we talked about last week, you have Trump and Carson that are now taking the lion's share of the votes. And in fact, you now have, I think last week we talked about how in states like Florida, you have Trump and Carson that are sitting atop the field, even where you have hometown boys, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio struggling. Now nationwide, if you look at CNN's latest poll, combining Donald Trump and Ben Carson, you have over half the Republican field. It You, you used to be able to say that the field was so spread out and so sure Donald Trump was in the lead, but, you know, he was only like five or six points ahead. There's no big deal. Nobody no. panic. Nobody panic. Nope. Panic. <laughs> Press the panic button. I, I, that, I'm not panicking. No, I know no, you're not, Margie. No, this, it, is, it is now acceptable to panic a little bit. I mean, we're past the summer. And, and in the past Shark when Week you've is had, over. Sharks week, Shark Week's over. Can't wear white anymore. Um, although I don't know about that rule. Let's do that. Let's find polling on that for next week's show. Uh, Excellent idea. Okay. Uh, So right now you have Donald Trump in the CNN poll nationally at 32%, and you have Ben Carson at 19%. And then you have to go all the way down to Jeb Bush at 9%. Like there's now a 10-point gap between second and third place. We used to not see such a big gap between the top tier and the rest of the field. Yeah. This is this is major. And the, and what's also crazy is this it seems like wow, this is such a huge change from a few weeks ago. And it is, but it CNN's also not the only poll that's showing that this kind of a thing. Right. Like it's the trend lines were pointing in this direction for a long time. Um yeah. so if if this keeps persisting, 
And it's remarkable that, you know, considering that a lot of folks looked at Trump's first performance in the debate and they said, ah, it wasn't good. And then he said all this crazy stuff about Megyn Kelly. And everybody's like, oh, that's not good. And yet, and yet. John McCain, remember that? That was supposed to be the end of him. That's yep. an- he is indestructible. He yeah. is, he is a, he is antibiotic resistant. Like he, he is just. There's some can't... sort of like superhero Marvel, like, I don't know who it would be, but there must be some like superhero, like, you know, the, the more horrible things he does, the stronger he becomes. I don't know what that, <laughs> somebody out there must Listeners, know if there's you know, some cartoon character like that would, that would describe him. I mean, the other thing I think was CNN that 51% of Republicans said they think he's going to be the nominee. That's surprising too, because you used to have this like, well, okay, well, I'm voting for Trump, but uh, Jeb Bush is probably going to be the nominee. Right. And sometimes, you know, we've discussed on this show before that the question of who do you think is going to win is yeah, sometimes more predictable, a little bit more predictive, pardon me. Um, so the fact that Trump is now at 51% of people think he's going to be the nominee, you can. You can understand why, right? If you've been, li- if you listen to the news coverage at all, you wouldn't even know who else was running. Exactly. Um, th- there's also some good statewide polling out on the Republican side. So John Kasich, his his story fascinates me at this point. Um, he right now is only at two percent in this most recent uh, poll nationally, but then in New Hampshire, he's in second place consistently and has really been growing his share. As he's been up on the air there, um, you know, he that that was a state that folks, you know, thought would probably be a pretty good uh, Jeb Bush state. But he is now he's now trailing not just Kasich, um, but I believe he's also trailing Carson in that state. Probably um, the yeah, the exact numbers coming out of that New Hampshire poll uh, have uh, Ben Carson um, with 16 Oh, no, pardon me. That's second choice. You have Donald Trump at 28. You have John Kasich at 12. You have Ben Carson at 11. And then you have Jeb Bush at eight. And that's a pretty big decline for Jeb Bush from February when Jeb Bush was atop the field with 18. In fact, if you look back at the February numbers from this Marist New Hampshire poll, there were four candidates who were in double digits in New Hampshire. It was Jeb Bush. It was Rand Paul. It was Scott Walker and it was Chris Christie. Yeah. And now none of them are in double digits. You know, when I look at all these numbers on the Republican side, what I find pretty interesting is that, you know, normally if you talk to voters, even primary voters, they're not, you know, they're not following with bated breath every twist and turn of what's going on in the race. But if you look at the primary polling as closely as we've been looking at here on the show, you actually see it moving in conjunction with what the political coverage you know, would would predict, you know, who's up, who's down, who's firing their staff, who's letting go their staff like Rick Perry, who can't get done. He's donor. an asterisk now. Yeah, exactly. He's right. And so people are, are, are following. It. I mean, Carson may be a little bit as a little bit of the exception to that. But the fact that Fiorina is now fifth here, um, Kasich, you know, the, the Kasich numbers are, are interesting to me. I mean, I was I was telling a Republican, I'll go nameless uh, in the green room. I said, you know, Democrats are worried. We're worried about Kasich after watching him at the debate. We're worried about Kasich for probably the same reasons he may not get out of a primary. But then you see him do quite well in New Hampshire. So we'll see what happens at the next debate, which is next Wednesday on CNN. So we'll see what happens after that. Yep. And and some final little, you know, sort of aftermath of the first debate that we've started to see pop up in polls um, that, that may surprise some folks. So Scott Walker, we've, we've talked about him a couple times in the last few weeks about the decline in his numbers nationally, as well as in Iowa and New Hampshire. He saw, takes a big hit in, you know, compared to where he was in February in the latest mm-hmm. Marist New Hampshire poll. 
his favorables are fascinating. If you look at, for instance, Jeb Bush's favorables among the potential Republican electorate in New Hampshire, he becomes a little less favorable. His his favorables are actually below 50 percent with potential Republican voters in New Hampshire, 38 percent unfavorable. Those are not good numbers. No. Scott Walker is Republicans with Republicans. Scott Walker is also under 50 percent at 48 percent favorable. His unfavorables are very low. The percentage of Republican voters who say they are unsure increased from 32 to 39 percent. You almost never see unsure increase. You see people, as they learn more and yeah. more about a candidate, make up their mind. He's, Either he's favorable a good or moment. unfavorable. But now he's got a lot more folks that are like, I don't know what to make of him. And perhaps the most stunning, and this will be the last time I talk about Trump on the show for the day, um, Trump's favorables in this New Hampshire poll back in July had him net negative with Republicans. Back when I was saying Republicans don't like Trump, Republicans don't like Trump. Right. I had data at the time to back it up. He had negative favorables. He was down 14. He had only 39 percent favorable, 53 percent unfavorable. Fast forward. He is now positive plus 15, 56 percent favorables with the potential Republican electorate in New Hampshire. You know, to go it, from down 14 to up 15 after the performance of the last two I months know. is like this is defying laws of physics. I know. of politics. I, I mean, know. it's it's really remarkable. I mean, cuz it's not like he's some brand new person. I mean, they they said, "Oh, you know what? I changed my mind. I like that guy," you know? And and what I find and this is not just this poll, the Des Moines Register poll found the same exact thing mm-hmm. from last week we spoke about it with uh, and uh, I think the Maris poll, NBC Maris poll found something similar. I mean, there's a there's a clear pattern here and the pattern is people have cha- Republicans have changed their mind about Trump. His overall favorables are continuing to be net unfavorable, but among Republicans, he's improving his image. And these Bush numbers haven't moved. They've been troubling for a long time with Republicans and overall where he's net unfavorable. And we're going to talk about Hillary Clinton in a minute, but you don't see as much coverage about, you know, Jeb Bush. Why don't people like him? It must be that blankety blank story. You know, you don't really see that in the same way that you do about Clinton, while his numbers are actually, you know, uh, have been net unfavorable this whole time. I mean, since he's been, you know, decided that he was going to be uh, a candidate, he's been net unfavorable. Um, and that to me is, a, you know, a big hurdle for him to overcome, you know, with general election voters, never mind getting out of the primary. So, well, let's let's talk then about the the other side and sort of what's going on there with with Hillary Clinton and with Bernie Sanders, because the most recent uh, Quinnipiac poll out of Iowa actually shows Bernie Sanders ahead of Hillary Clinton by one point. So, I mean, it's, you know, just the, because the poll shows that he's ahead does not mean he's actually ahead with voters. But it's the first no. poll that showed him right. up in Iowa. I mean, there have been a couple of polls now that have shown him up in New Hampshire. There was the uh, Boston Herald or Boston Globe poll. I, I, I can't remember which. I apologize. There was the Marist uh, NBC poll that came out this weekend. I think there was a third poll that showed or fourth poll that showed him up in New Hampshire. That's not a surprise given <clears throat> excuse me, that he's from there, uh, from Vermont. But this is the first Iowa poll that has showed him 
up in Iowa over Clinton with Biden in the race. So that's without Biden in the race. With Biden in the race, it's 43 Clinton, 37 Sanders, 12 Biden. So uh, so Biden pulls from both candidates roughly equally, which is what Ann Seltzer told us last week was the case in Iowa in her poll. So this is confirming that, that, that Biden seems to pull uh, from both Sanders and Clinton. And, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting here, which is this evolving question as uh, as there's been a lot of press coverage of Clinton and their email story and the apology and and, and that that storyline is is this a reaction to Sanders or is this a reaction to Clinton and it, you know it, it's probably some of both but it's but it's clear that there's something really going on here with Sanders it's simply not people turning away from from Clinton now. So let me say one that's a little bit of both. When you look at the honest and trustworthy numbers, this again, this is among Democratic caucus goers in Iowa, and this is the Quinnipiac poll. Um, Sanders has stronger numbers. Eighty-six percent say he's honest and trustworthy. Sixty-four percent say the same about Clinton. Um, so that's you know that's advantage Sanders. But if you look at the you know favorability ratings, I mean Hillary Clinton is is about as popular as Sanders. I mean, she has slightly higher unfavorables, but her favorables are the same. 76% favorable for Clinton, 78 for Sanders. She's 20% unfavorable among uh, Democrats in Iowa for Clinton, 6% for Sanders. Uh, more for Sanders say they haven't heard anything about him. Um, and, it, you know, you have 78% say Clinton cares about the needs and problems of people like you. You have, uh, you know, in 92% that say Clinton has strong leadership qualities. Uh, that that's more than say the same about Sanders. So it really depends on the question. But it, it's clear to me that it's not as simple as some of the press would make this out to be, that that this is somehow a reaction to the email story and the Clinton campaign is, you know, collapsing. When you have, you know, numbers that are in the 80s and 90s on some of these ratings, favorability in the 80s among Democrats, this is not a sign of a, of a, of a candidate with, with huge weaknesses. That said, Sanders is making inroads. That's true. Some of it is because of advantages he has. We've talked about that sometimes on issues and, and some issues. Uh, some image traits, but it, it's it's a little bit of both. It's not as simple, once again, as the media might make it seem. What do you think, Kristen? This, to me, is just another data point that kind of confirms what Ann Selzer said last week, which is there are these weird echoes of 2008 that are out there. It doesn't mean that Hillary Clinton is, you know, she's doomed, oh, she's not going to win, especially because it's not the case that Democratic voters dislike her. It's, right. it's, you know, it's not that her favorables are bad with Democrats. They're still great and they haven't really moved. That it's that there are key pieces of the Obama coalition that are not coming home to Hillary Clinton. They're going to Bernie Sanders. So if you look at the crosstabs of um, this Quinnipiac, Iowa Dem poll, um, Bernie Sanders gets 66 percent of young Iowa Democrats. Hillary Clinton only gets 19. Hillary Clinton actually wins really handily among Democratic voters over the age of 50. She wins 48 to 37, 31 among um, folks that are 50 to 64. She wins 53 to 20 among 65 and up Democratic voters. So Hillary Clinton does really well with older Democrats, but she loses young Democrats and loses Democrats in that 35 to 49 range just by three points. But, um, you know, there's clearly the younger you are, the more 
you like Bernie Sanders. And there's also this question that they asked in the poll, which was in selecting the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, which is more important to you, a candidate with the best chance to defeat the Republican or a candidate who comes closest to the view your views on the issues. And here you see the same kind of generational correlation where younger voters say, I'm not concerned about electability. I just want someone who's got positions that are like mine. And we are always finding that the reason why people say they like Bernie Sanders is they like his message. It's not that they don't like Hillary Clinton. They and just he's l- not going negative on Clinton. He right. hasn't done that. He's only spoken about his issues. And, and that seems to be a, a good strategy for him up until this point. Meanwhile, as you go, you know, so 85 percent of the youngest voters in Iowa, 18 to 34, prefer a candidate that's closer to their views. Um, as you move up the age scale, like for senior citizens, it's 43% would actually prefer somebody who could defeat the Republican candidate. Only 53% say closest to my views is what's most important. So 85 to 53, that's a pretty big drop off as you go up the age scale. You know, and the other thing too is Biden's numbers. And, and we link to all the stuff in our show notes and then you can go uh, dig deep if you like. But Biden's numbers are really strong too. They're pretty similar. I mean, he he's incredibly popular. People feel that he he cares about uh, problems, uh, people uh, like themselves, uh, that he has the right kind of temperament, um, all of that, uh, leadership qualities, et cetera. I mean, it, at some level, there's more similarity in the in the polling about these three candidates than there are differences when you compare that to the Republican field where you have a couple candidates in different sort of lanes, even if those lanes may be changing and the people at the top of those lanes or ahead in those lanes may change. There's, there's different tracks. Here, these three candidates candidates have quite a few similarities, except for this piece on issues, whether you're voting for them because you agree with them on issues or for some other reason. And this poll confirms what we've been seeing now for quite a few weeks, that there's an issue specific appeal to the the, of the Sanders campaign um, rather than something specific about Hillary Clinton. The only thing that I I think if I was a, a Hillary Clinton supporter that would make me nervous is still not actually the the Democratic primary, but it's some of these numbers that you still see about the general election. So, you know, this email story and what have you, I don't actually think it's what's making Hillary Clinton do worse in the Democratic primary. Again, I think it's as we're seeing in this data, it's that they're just liking what Bernie Sanders has to say. Um, but there we have a couple of different matchups in these the the Marist uh, poll um, where it's comparing, uh, you know, Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, a, a variety of different matchups. And you actually see uh, some improvement um, for, for instance, uh, Jeb Bush. Uh, if you take a look, for instance, at the the Marist uh, New Hampshire poll, the Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush head to head back in February, Hillary Clinton was beating Jeb Bush 48 to 42. Um, now she's losing 43 to 48. So even though Jeb Bush has had, you know, not the greatest summer, um, Hillary Clinton, it, it appears with general election voters, at least, has has had maybe a worse summer. Um, if you take a look at Iowa as well, another state that, you know, people think of as being really conservative, but it's actually a blue – it's been a yep. blue state in the last few presidential elections. Yep. The matchup there in February had Hillary Clinton up 48 to 40 over Jeb Bush. Um, the latest poll has her down 11, 50 to 39. So if I'm a Democrat who supports Hillary Clinton, even though all – you know, we just paid all this attention to the Quinnipiac poll and what's going on in the Democratic primary, I still think she's a very formidable candidate. I don't think the reason why she's struggling there is people don't like her. 
But for the general election, the fact that she's now trailing someone like Jeb Bush, who has had maybe not the most stellar of a summer, um, that would be the thing that would make me a little more nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then you see, you know, and you continue to see a case for Joe Biden. I mean, you yeah, know, he he uh, he beats, he does better. He does better. And, so, you know, we've seen this before in the Quinnipiac battleground state poll from a couple of weeks ago. You see it here. Um, he does better or the same. Now, look, these are not major differences, folks. I mean, we're talking about a couple points here. Ultimately, we have a divided country and a national ballot really ha- almost has no bearing on what goes on in the battleground states with all those caveats aside, not to mention how far out we are. Um, Nonetheless, you know, you're seeing, you know, Biden do well in these head to heads. Clinton, you know, continuing to, you know, weakening from her earlier position, but still, you know, still competitive. Um, I think, you know, another thing that I think people maybe trip up on is they look at these numbers and they say, well, Clinton was at 55, you know, four months ago, five months ago, and now she's at, you know, 48. The sky is falling for her campaign. And, you know, I I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. It doesn't mean it's not happening. It doesn't mean it's not happening for a reason, but it doesn't mean that that's dramatic. We're still a long way away. Yes. All right. Well, so speaking of... uh long way away. I was away for a long while over the last week or so, um, including a little bit of a little bit of fun travel for Labor Day weekend. I was in Arizona visiting family. Margie, did you have a fun Labor Day weekend? Yeah, we had a block party with, uh, you know, all the usual block party suspects in uh, in Tacoma Park. And, you know, I mean, we went to the pool. I mean, you know, you did can't you just have a picture of David Korn playing the guitar? I did. You know, he lives right around the corner from me. So <laughs> I actually Hashtag this him. town. Actually, I see him quite a bit. And he's, you know, he's not a shy dude. He's very happy to be, you know, kind of the like the, you know, deputized mayor of our little neighborhood. So um, so it was everybody was very excited to see him uh, pick up the guitar. And it was funny because, you know, it seemed like everybody could play an instrument except for me or sing. And it was very much a good it was a good vibe. And, uh, you know, close out the pool on the last final swim of the season. I mean, you can't really get too far from home when you have a two-month-old and a three-year-old. That still sounds like a very, very solid Labor Day. It was a very solid Labor Day. So speaking of labor, um, with uh, Labor Day, we now want to talk a little bit about polling around the role of unions and how Americans are feeling about their experiences in the workplace. So Gallup has tracked attitudes toward labor unions for decades now. For almost 80 years, we have data going back. Um, Back in the 30s during the sort of Great Depression era, um, when people were first asked this question, 72 percent said they approved of labor unions. Um, Those numbers fell off pretty fairly significantly down to about 61 percent when folks were polled again in sort of the early 40s. Favorability toward labor unions rose again in the 1950s, up to 75 percent approval um, for labor unions in sort of the mid 1950s. Um, but in recent, in more recent years, favorability toward labor unions has not been quite as high. Um, during the Reagan era in the 80s, favorability toward labor unions was at or below 60 percent. Um, and at, on the eve of the financial crisis, favorability for labor unions was 60 percent, but it plummeted um, in the aftermath of the crisis down to 48 percent. But it's been on the rebound ever since, um, pretty much since around 2009, and is now back up to 58 percent. Margie, what do you think is happening? Why do you think that the, the sort of image of labor unions has improved 
since the rise of the Tea Party. That's what's, I think, surprising to me. Is- I don't, I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, they don't really, you know, have a conjecture here. I mean, well, first of all, the, the chart makes it look like it's a lot more dramatic than perhaps it has been. Given That's true, because the axis. Because of the way the scale is. <laughs> so pay attention, Dr. Brent's stats class and other folks. So the way that the axis looks, it looks like there's this big, huge drop. And of course, there is a drop, but it is not quite as dramatic if you're talking about 72 in the 30s to numbers in the 60s in more recent times. Times, it's actually not that huge of a difference, um, especially given how, you know, how the role of labor has changed dramatically, mm-hmm. in, in the, you know, outside of this question. Right. Um, but it, it's it seems like there's been a real change since the recession. You see it in other questions that Gallup asked on the same topic. You now have a plurality that say they uh, would want to see uh, labor unions have more influence. That's the first time that's been true since 2008. Um, however, you have almost no change in the percent that uh, in what people predict is the future for labor. You have a majority say they expect labor to become weaker in the future. And that's pretty much consistent with where it's been, you know, for the last decade or so with just a little bit of fluctuation. I mean, it may be that people feel um, there's more room for a labor movement now that the economy, has, uh, uh, you know, has rebounded some. Um, perhaps they don't feel, you know, maybe they feel that uh, maybe it is, there's some overall views toward income inequality that may be changing uh, views toward labor, that they want to see more of a role for labor to, to help uh, uh, fix that, uh, that problem that we've seen in other polling. Yet, if you look at an, yet another Gallup poll on the effectiveness of a variety of proposals to improve the economy, Increasing the power of labor unions is actually at the very bottom of a list that has, I don't know, a few dozen things on here. Um, so it, the most, the, the, what's considered most effective is ensuring women paid equal pay for equal work. The least effective is increasing the power of, uh, of labor unions. Um, but also reducing corporate taxes for businesses. I mean, there's something for everybody on the top and the bottom of the list. Yeah, I think here. that's an interesting constellation of things from both the left and right policy palette uh, that are that are sprinkled in there. Right. Requiring a balanced federal budget. That's at the top of the list. Increasing the minimum wage toward the top of the list, you know, um, uh, reducing the capital gains tax toward the bottom of the list. Anyway, but that's a little bit of a digression. But what's interesting to, in sort of a similar view, similar topic is uh, the, the fact that equal pay for equal work is at the top of the list, while, um, you know, you don't necessarily hear people talk about gender discrimination all the time, um, or it's seen as maybe a partisan issue or a niche issue. It's actually something that it seems to be, one, remedying it may, it may be considered very effective, and two, actually something quite a few women have experienced and very little change in that. So while people who think the economy is doing better, people want to see more of a role for unions, there's actually very little change in the number of women who say they've either been passed over for a promotion or opportunity at work or have felt denied now, it's not massive numbers of women you're talking about, you know, 10 to 15 percent uh, or 20 to 20 percent roughly of women, depending on how the question's asked. Uh, but that's, you know, that's still you're talking about quite a bit of of economic opportunity. You know, you're talking about a real dollar amount there. And what's I thought particularly fascinating is they ask how, uh, both men and women, how satisfied are you with this uh, aspect of your job? 
And women are less satisfied than men across the board on every single item, but huge, but the massive difference on the amount of money they earn. That's where you see a real difference in satisfaction. Men, of course, more satisfied than our women. No difference on the flexibility of your hours, which is fascinating given how much talk there is about workplace flexibility for women and how important that is. Really, women want you know they're what they're most satisfied women and about. men want. Yep, they want to be they they want to make more money. Yep. Um, and uh, what I think is so fascinating about this sort of gender-based uh, fairness in pay, fairness in promotions and the politics of it is that even though you have 85 percent, 87 percent of women say, you know, I haven't been passed over for a promotion because of my gender. Eighty-three percent say, you know, I haven't been denied fairness in pay because of, of my work. You know, it's, it is this small 12 percent of women um, say they've been passed over for a promotion. Seventeen say they've been passed over or denied fairness in pay because of their gender. But even though that's a relatively small amount. I mean, you still see these huge numbers saying this is an issue we need to address for the economy. So it's, you know, typically we we assume people place importance on issues based on like, how much personal relevance is there to your life about this issue. Um, here, you have a very small percentage of women who say they've experienced dis- discrimination, but you still see these overwhelming numbers for people saying we need to fix this as a major economic concern. Right. Right, right. And, you know, to go back to 2016. So, you know, if you look at the candidates and what they're talking about, um, I think both Clinton and Sanders are well positioned to talk about issues where it comes to women and Joe Biden, for that matter, too, whether it's gender discrimination or income inequality. Those are issues that to varying degrees with varying angles to which they can speak while, again, this now I'm wearing a little bit of a partisan hat here. And we can talk about uh, Kim Davis now on the right. You see oh, thanks, less thanks. of a not Kristen. I was talking about some of the Republican candidates focusing on, you know, if you're talking about Kim Davis, is that reaching, is that speaking out to women and, and the issues that concern them? Um, maybe, I don't maybe think not. the Kim Davis thing is a play for the, the women's vote. I think that's a different, I think that's a different <laughs> story, which we can get to in a minute. But you, I do think you've seen some Republican candidates, at least you did six months ago before the Trump tornado hit, who understood that they need to be smart on these issues, that they can't just say, well, I had a binder full of good women resumes and like that's my answer on equal pay. I think they get that you need you need to do something a little differently. I mean, the words income inequality, you, you could hear them coming out of the mouth of someone like a Ted Cruz back six months ago that yeah. there were Republicans who were kind of trying to corner the market on this populist wave by talking about some of this stuff. Again, the Trump tornado has sort of blown through and now... Oh, everybody's landing in the land everybody's of Oz. Everybody's landing in the land of Oz. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think the Kim Davis thing, though, was uh, <laughs> Maybe that was an awkward segue. Like, no, <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, but we did, we do have a poll this week, just a, just real quick that we'll touch on about the, the Kim Davis story. So, um, as I mentioned in the, the intro to our show, there's a story in Kentucky that's been unfolding over the last week or so where um, a county clerk... Uh, on religious grounds, refused to issue marriage licenses to uh, to any couple, but in particular said the reason why she was refusing to issue marriage licenses was in opposition to same-sex marriage. Um, she was ordered by a court to uh, 
to proceed and refuse the court order. And as a result, she was put in jail for contempt of court um, and, you know, in this way has become sort of a, a martyr a little bit for um, for, I think, the extreme piece of the religious freedom movement. You right. see a big divide, I think. You see a divide among Republicans on this issue. Um, and so there's there was polling done by Huffington Post YouGov um, where they asked voters, do you think that Davis should resign? Do you think she should be required to issue licenses or not issue licenses? Should she face jail time or not face jail time? Should she resign or stay in her job? And a 75 percent of Democrats, 60 percent of Republicans, 60 percent of independents say she should resign. Republicans and independents look identical Um, on the question of should she be required to issue licenses, though, you do see some gaps emerge. Seventy percent of Democrats say, yeah, she should be required to issue licenses. Majority uh, half of independents, only 40 percent of Republicans. But it's a pretty close divide with the GOP. Um, Forty six percent say she should not be required to issue licenses. So still, you know, it's kind of it's fairly split on the jail time question, though, 72 percent of Democrats say she should be in jail. Republicans are split evenly, 42 to 42. Um, and independents lean towards saying she she should be in jail um, as well for for. And it, it, this is a, it's a complicated issue because she's technically in jail. She's not in jail for like what she's in jail for is contempt of court. She's in jail for defying a court order. When I first heard the story, I thought, like, how do you put someone in jail for not doing their job? But then once it was explained to me, like, oh, that'd be great, wouldn't it? I'm like, that's a little (laughs) I didn't do my job. So now I'm in jail. Like, I feel like I've missed a few steps. I have a whole whole list of people Um, I like to arrest that uh, for non-political reasons. (laughs) (laughs) But so I mean, there is this divide I have noticed anecdotally among conservatives that I follow online where some are saying this is this is about religious liberty and people should be able to execute their job um, without having to violate their beliefs. On the other hand, you have a, a lot of conservatives who have been stepping back and saying, gosh, isn't everybody so surprised to discover how difficult it is to fire a bureaucrat who refuses to do their job? Like, look, maybe we'll win some con- some converts to, you know, things like public sector reform, because when a bureaucrat's not doing their job, you should be able to get rid of them. And um, and also some folks taking kind of umbrage at the coverage, because I guess technically Kim Davis is registered as a Democrat. And then the judge that put her in jail is was appointed by a Republican. So Kentucky is one of those states where party labels just mean very different things. And like, there's a lot going on here. Um, but, but I'm amazed, it, though, that the that Republicans. Well, I'm not amazed. I'm mean, not surprised. But considering the coverage where, you know, I think sometimes the press likes to fall in this trap. which like, look at these crazy Republicans. They all want, you know, they're all like Kim Davis, where the polling does not support that because even Republicans are, are pretty divided. And majority of them think that she should resign. But then so I agree with you. Thank you for making that point. <laughs> but I will add There was this other piece of the story where Mike Huckabee went to take a picture with Kim Davis, um, you know, like wanted the photo op of like, I'll go to jail in her place and like is making this a big thing. And there was a story that apparently a Huckabee aide like physically like body checked Ted Cruz so that he could like out of the shot. Like there you are now having talk about the Republican primary becoming WrestleMania. You are literally having physical altercations now um, over getting photo ops with guys, guys and gal. This is not a general election strategy. It's not even a Republican primary strategy. I don't know what this is. This is 
I digress. Anyway, well. I promised we weren't going to talk about Donald Trump anymore. I'm going to stick to that. Well, let's stick to the thing where you are best known for being an expert. In fact, you're such an expert that now Pew and YouGov and everybody else said, hey, we need some of that millennial research stuff. So Kristen, as you know, wrote the book on millennials, the selfie selfie vote available wherever fine books are sold. And um, there's been a ton of polling on millennials and relationships recently. I thought this millennial label poll got got a lot of press. It's pretty interesting about how millennials don't even want to be called millennials. I don't know if that's very millennially of them or do they have they just not gotten the memo that that's their name or they're just saying, hey, don't label me. I mean, what is that about? I think it's a lot of those things. So we have talked on this show before about this aversion to labels in general that you see with young people. That's why so many of them don't choose a party. That's why so many of the, the, there's there is the aversion to label piece. You can also forgive millennials for not liking the term millennials because 99% of the time when there's a like how to deal with millennials in the workplace article it's really condescending how to deal with millennials on x how to deal with millennials on y like there have been so many kind of ham-fisted attempts of like millennial marketing and right trend pieces on millennials that are kind of goofy that look there are times when i think i don't i am a millennial but I don't want to be associated with that. Well, you're not that much longer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> time is running out on the, your millennial. No, so no, your but, millennial expertise days never. But your millennial as your label. Well, no. So t- I mean, that's the thing is like the the label moves with you. Based, you know, so like oh, how that's true. How so you know millennials will no longer be young voters one right. day. But we'll still be millennials in the way that like boomers were once young voters, but they were still boomers. Now boomers are old voters, but they're still boomers. Although fascinatingly in this poll, so only 40 percent of people who meet the technical definition of millennial considered themselves to be millennials. Gen Xers are a little more likely to identify themselves. So Gen Xers are people who are 35 to 50. You have about 58 percent who will identify themselves as such. Baby boomers kind of have embraced their label. 79% of baby boomers have accepted, you know, identify themselves as such. And then the silent generation, only 18% of them consider themselves that. Um, which I'm wondering, where does the, the greatest generation fit into that? Is the greatest generation supposed to be older than yes. the silent? Yes. So that's why they did, they, there are none in yes, this poll. Um, but there was, the the question was not, are you a millennial or not? It just said, which generation do you identify with most? Right. And you actually had a small sliver of the millennial generation who identified themselves as boomers. And you had a small sliver of the baby boomers I know, isn't that who identified themselves as millennials, I which know. was very interesting. And then you have millennials more likely to attribute negative traits to their generation percent. That's a, each generation saying these terms describe their generation overall. And you have um, 59% of millennials saying self-absorbed describes their generation. They're also, they describe themselves as wasteful, greedy, not themselves personally, but their generation. Again, this is all from Pew. Um, while all generations are equally likely to describe themselves as tolerant or environmentally conscious, which I thought was pretty interesting or entrepreneurial. Um, but millennials, I guess the most positive thing here is they describe themselves as idealistic, which I guess you can take as a positive or as a negative. But, um, but I thought that was pretty, 
That was pretty interesting. And they don't really describe themselves by a lot of positive traits like patriotic or responsible or hardworking while the other older generations are saying, yes, that's that's us. That's what we are. Right. And and remember, these questions are about how, what do you think describes your generation yes. rather than yourself? Yeah. I did that research for the college Republicans back two years ago where we tested a whole bunch of different words and said, what do you wish your friends would use to describe you? And actually responsible and hardworking were at the, toward the top of that list of like, this is what I want my friends to think about me. Um, so it's it's somewhat disheartening that they they come in so low as actually seeing their generation as having achieved that. Um, pulling back like the, the curtain a little bit um, and, you know, talking a little bit about my experience in writing or coming up with how we were going to title and market the book. Um, so one, the title, the selfie vote. A big concern about if we were going to title the book that was: does it make? Does it sound like the selfish vote? Does it sound like the right. self-absorbed vote? Is is that going to be really condescending to young voters who are like, I'm ugh, my generation, self-absorbed, ugh, selfie vote, a book about millennials, ew, gross. And mm. and so there are like pieces of this poll that suggest that's a real risk. Right. That it, you know, that if they think their own generation is really self-absorbed and they don't even like the label millennials, then therefore, if you have a book entitled The Selfie Vote, where millennials are leading America and how Republicans right. can keep up, like, are you alienating your core audience with the title. So there was an extensive amount of email traffic between. I don't think so because your book is doing fabulously. So that oh, can't, that can't possibly. And you should write a review of that too. Um, so, you know, and other, it's interesting, the hardworking piece, there's been a lot of research out there about uh, rate when you raise kids and you, and you talk to kids rather than call them smart, call them hardworking. So praise the effort rather than smart. So you don't have a kid who grows up to say, well, I'm smart, so I should be able to just do this. And if they can't do it automatically, they're like, well, I got, you know, I thought I was smart, so I'm not going to try this because I can't do this. Build so, resilience. So you want to cultivate that hardworking piece. And so you see that as at least one of the positive traits that millennials think are a little bit more descriptive of their um, generation. But there's some other labels that millennials are a little bit less likely to use. One is heterosexual. There's been a, uh, I think this is YouGov, uh, that did a poll that showed uh, younger voter, younger adults in particular are less, a lot less likely to consider themselves heterosexual. Uh, they're more likely to consider themselves bisexual than any other generation. So 29% of 18 to 29-year-olds consider themselves some degree of bisexual in any, in any way, compared to 7% of 65 and older folks, which I guess is not a surprise that there'd be an age, uh, age gap there. Um, also an age, you know, I guess maybe this is related, maybe not. You see more younger folks are more likely to use um, messaging apps that have that automatically, that have the automatic delete function like Snapchat. 17% of folks overall, according to Pew, use apps that have that automatic uh, automatic delete feature. Uh, 41% of 18 to 29-year-olds. I mean, that's a pretty huge difference. I mean, I I can't say, I don't know if they ask how often you use or if you just use in general or if you've used once. I mean, I've, you know, it's certainly not, it's, you know, not something that is as common with folks who are, who are older. Um, and then there was also, and then 
I think it disappeared, but there was also some stuff in terms of openness to different kinds of relationships in the Pew Catholic survey, which we should link to. So I don't know if you saw that in, in time for the Pope's visit. There was some huge data on how Catholics are more open to a variety of different relationships, whether it's families that are uh, people who are cohabitating, whether it's openly gay families. So it's all timed for the Pope's visit, which I think is next week. It's coming up. Uh, the Pope's visit is going to be around, I believe, September 21st, 22nd, 23rd, uh, 24th. is going to be here in D.C., I believe also in Philadelphia, in traveling around. And there's going to be a lot, I suspect there will be a lot of polls released around that. I know I'm involved in at least two different projects with different clients where they have public data on different topics but related to the Pope um, that they're they're planning to roll out. So I suspect we will have quite a bit of Pope data to talk about here on a future show. Okay. All right. Cool. So we can go back to the Pope uh, next week and we can decide whether we want to talk more about the Pope's visit or more about the Republican CNN debate. It will depend entirely on how entertaining it is. <laughs> Who is going to be more entertaining, the Pope or Donald Trump? That's a good poll uh, question. Define entertaining. Um, I guess who will be more unpredictable? Maybe that's a way because sometimes the Pope can surprise you. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, but then Donald Trump is all is predictably unpredictable. And who's going to be more uh, separate themselves more from their sort of party, their party allegiances, right? Who's going to depart more from the sort of traditional party allegiances, the Pope or Donald Trump? Remains to be seen. That we don't know. That Maybe this will be my next Google consumer survey. I'll spend another $50 to do another one of these Trump versus Kanye. We'll do Trump versus the Pope. Yeah, I think that's good. We'll see. You know, I think my money's on my money's on the Pope. Um, and then, you know, here's something from the Department of Polls you didn't know you needed, but now you have. <laughs> Gallup has said that they've done the first nationally representative survey about chiropractors and turns out people actually... People like chiropractors. They feel chiropractors have their best interests in mind. They're trustworthy. And they are one of the top, before masseuses and masseurs, they are one of the top places people go when they have neck and back pain. And I wrote, you know, Google's got, I mean, Gallup's got your back when it comes to polling on... Chiropractors, nobody laughed. That's like (laughs) my burn baby burn. Nobody said inferno. Ha, nobody favorited it. Nothing. Bupkis. (laughs) (laughs) No LOL from anybody. So, and so on that note, uh, I think we'll turn now to uh, interviewing our guest, um, Howard Feinberg with the Marketing Research Association. Well, Howard, we're so excited to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us today to talk about some new uh, potential legal. Legal issues really affecting the entire industry. So, Howard, why don't you tell us a, a, a brief explainer for folks who haven't been following this as closely as we have? Um, what has been happening with the FCC, and and what does it mean for uh, the research industry? In 1991, Congress passed the Telephone Consumer Protection Act (TCPA) that tasked the Federal Communications Commission (FCC) uh, with restricting how companies could use automation, auto dialers to call people with cell phones. At the time, hardly anyone had one. Now we're at a point where more than 60% of the population is only reachable on a cell phone, or at least 60%, more than 60% of households can only be reached that way. Uh, The FCC has, over time, slowly tightened the noose around people's use of that automation, these auto dialers, 
to call cell phones just at the point as cell phones become more prevalent and really the only way to do a statistically valid survey of the United States. Uh, the most recent rules made it such that the only phone that we know for certain is legal to use to call someone on a cell phone is a rotary dial phone. And the, so the uh, reason for that is, so they basically have said, if your dialer has the capability of, of being an auto dialer, then it's not allowed, even if you're not using it in that way, correct? Correct. If it will, and if it has the potential right. to be uh, to be turned into that. So if it's you use your eye, so if it, you, has, it has the potential to be changed to be used. Don't tell way. the FCC that I've developed a robot <laughs> that can automatically use a rotary phone. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just keep that our little secret. Right. So if your iPhone had the capability to be an auto dialer, but you are manually dialing it, you're still in violation of this new regulation, correct? And they pretty much agreed on that, but didn't want to rule on it specifically because people haven't been sued for that yet. Right. But that, that word yet was very clear in there. I mean, I, right. you know, I don't know what you're hearing uh, on the Republican side, Kristen, but I see a lot of people really worrying about what these new rules mean for uh, mean for polling costs across the board. I just got an email yesterday, avoid big fines, come to our legal briefing. You know, AIM sent it almost, I think, the entire industry. I mean, is this, do we need to start panicking as, as researchers, Howard? Um, I, I don't think panic is quite the right response, but there does need to be a, you know, you need to look at what your practices are. And so as a researcher is both people who conduct telephone research and people who buy it or use it, uh, you need to be taking a very careful look at how it's being conducted and the kind of what technology is being used. I mean, the, the, what we've tried to explain to our members is you need to take a very careful risk management approach. Yeah, in the Gallup case, wasn't it something like a $12 million settlement? And they, yeah. they say they didn't do anything wrong, but it was alleged that they had used automatic dialing technology to call a cell phone. And, and this whoever this guy was got upset and, and pursued. Was it a class action lawsuit that, that they pursued? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and that's the thing. These are very, it's very easy to turn stuff into a class action lawsuit. And there are a couple angles of that. The upside for the class action lawyer is that although even if you have no evidence whatsoever, you can make the claim. And then if the, if the trial moves forward, uh, you may get you may be able to easily get access to all of the records of the company that you're suing. And once you get access to the records, you can surely find some instances that would support your case. Right. And usually I those are accidents. But the law, the law doesn't make any uh, allowance for accidents. Mm -hmm. And so just for clarification for folks who are listening, so they've changed the regulation. The next step is a lawsuit to, to get them to clarify the new regulation or a bill that would change the, re change the new regulation. But it's in effect starting now, correct? Uh, it was in effect as soon as they made the rules public last month. So they, so people could, so there could be lawsuits brought against pollsters, people being fined. I mean, that could happen, you know, as soon as, as, as you know, as soon as now. Yeah, it's already been going on. And actually, the, on the lawsuit angle, one final thing to note is that there are mobile apps that are set up by trial trial law firms for the specific purpose of you, you know, turning over all of the phone incoming phone call numbers to them, so they can sue everyone that calls you. So wow. automating <laughs> the law, automating the lawsuits on the TCPA, which was designed to fight against wow. automation. 
Curfew <laughs> trial lawyers. I'm shaking my fist at the sky right now. Wow, that's that's pretty intense. Do you do you think that uh, reporters and the press are covering this story as much as they should? Are they do they understand it? Have they uh, you know have you had any obstacles in trying to get them to understand the importance of uh, the new upcoming regulations? Um, it's it's a, not the easiest thing to explain. I got to admit. Um, I was especially in uh, the in June uh, in particular when the rules were under consideration when they're getting ready to vote. I had tons and tons of interviews, and I would say less than a quarter of the journalists had half an inkling of what I was talking about. And you could tell in what they reported in the end, uh, a lot of the focus was on robocalls when you know robocalls were not the point. Um, it was every call, and the impact of what it would mean for not just the research industry, but every industry, was really rarely touched on, uh, and as well as the the you know legal implications and the cost that it presents to all these industries, and then to people and the consumers and every the governments that rely on that information, that doesn't come across. But that's a hard thing to get across to a journalist, especially when you're dealing with folks that don't have technical expertise in what they're reporting on. And and that was a common problem back in my days at Stats when we had people on the science beat that were fresh off of the garden beat. Um, you can't expect them to know everything about an issue. They're coming in completely cold, and you have to start from scratch and help them understand things. It takes a long time, and by the time you've won, won them over and helped them understand things, they've moved on to the music beat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the cycle of life for journalists, and yeah. there's not much I can do about that. Right, 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 right. Howard, I want to ask a question about you um, and how you came to this role with the Marketing Research Association. I'm so fascinated because, you know, Margie and I, we do polling to understand politics. Um, and your job is to understand the politics that affect polling. Um, how did you wind up in uh, this role as sort of the chief lobbyist or chief advocate for the polling and market research industry? Um, you could trace it back to the fact that my dad is a statistician, um, and that's one that's one of the reasons. You and uh, Mark, this is a this is a family business for so many yes. people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I I can't say that it genetically rubbed off on me because I almost flunked my quantitative methods class in grad school. But when I got to DC, I landed with a science policy think tank called Stats, and one of my the, the task of the organization was to teach journalists and help them understand how research is done and be able to understand me research methodology, which is something that I learned you know, a lot about in grad school and then you know, turned myself into an expert on methodology in order to be able to pick apart opinion polls. And at least not to say that this poll is good, this poll is bad, but to really help journalists understand the meat and potatoes of how surveys are done in order to understand when they're presented with one, what kind of questions they should ask beyond just the usual nonsense of, it's paid for by X, therefore it must be biased. Uh, and that's fun off. I mean, I went to work in Congress uh, for Chris Cox and Cliff Stearns, uh, both of whom are now out of Congress. Uh, when I was a staffer for both of them, I spent most of my time uh, dealing with the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House. And that was a tie, along with my familiarity with the research industry, to come back and when MRA came looking for a lobbyist when I left the Hill, um, I landed with MRA and I've been here eight and a half years. Thank you so okay. much. We really appreciate it. This was great. I know people are going to be really excited. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Howard. Take care. Bye. Bye.
Okay, that was Howard Feinberg from the Market Research Association. We're so excited that he could join us today. All right, Margie, so what are our key findings this week? So, well, we tried we tried really hard to give everyone a break from 2016 or at least a little break from Trump. Maybe next week or maybe a new, few weeks from now. I don't know. There's it's no escape. I think we, <laughs> there's no break till 2017. Um, any pollsters or handicappers who said Sanders had hit a ceiling or said Trump had hit a ceiling, well, you're welcome to come on our show anytime for a mea culpa and we're looking at you, 538 and New York Times Upshot. And we're looking at everybody else, too, because lots of other people said that, too. I confess. Yeah, and Kristen. Well, Kristen's always welcome on the show. <laughs> Meanwhile, polls suggest people, uh, voters may want to talk about income inequality and maybe gender in the workplace, but perhaps not uh, Kim Davis. Um, and uh, Or they don't want anybody dissing their chiropractor. And millennials? Don't call the millennials. That's right. Pro <laughs> tip. If you want to reach out to millennials, don't call the millennials. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Kay Anderson. Margie's at Margie O'Mero. You can reach both of us at at the pollsters. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, any of your uh, various podcast uh, subscription services. We're also on Facebook where we post uh, the latest and greatest poll numbers that we find throughout the week. And you can find us at thepollsters.com. Great. Thanks. See you next week. Thanks, everyone.